This is the Baltimore City Paper Podcast. In each episode, we bring you expanded versions of stories and commentary from the editorial staff of the Baltimore City Paper. I'm your host, Peter Clow. The sound you are hearing is the alert tone that an Uber driver hears when a potential passenger has requested a pickup. The driver has 15 seconds to accept the trip or decline it. When the alert sounds, the driver quickly glances at the phone, and he sees where the passenger is located, along with an estimate of how far away he is. It's one of the sounds of what City Paper staff writer Edward Erickson dubbed the desperate hustle as a way of life. When Ed wrote this last year in a blog post on the City Paper website, it got 20 times the number of views that a typical post gets. So much attention that Ed was actually invited to speak on the topic at the Baltimore TEDx conference in January. On this episode, Ed and I, along with City Paper Managing Editor Baynard Woods, discuss the so-called sharing economy and its impact on our society. A couple of times we cut away to an excerpt from Ed's TED Talk, and those will be announced by this official TED Talk sounder. In Part 2, we expand upon Baynard's recent column on the proposed renovation of the Lexington market entitled, The Lexington Market is Not a Shithole. In this piece, Baynard takes issue with the term vibrancy, and we discuss what it really means in terms of urban redevelopment. So let's get started now with the desperate hustle as a way of life on the Baltimore City Paper Podcast. Today we're going to talk about Uber and the desperate hustle as a way of life. Edward Erickson is here with us, along with uh, Baynard Woods, the managing editor of the City Paper. Guys, good to have you here. Good to be here. Yeah. All right, so last year you wrote about Uber, and everyone writes about Uber in these glowing terms, a wonderful company. It's the fastest company ever to a billion dollars in revenue. Holy crap, it's worth $41 billion. Everybody wants to invest in Uber. Ed, you took another look at it. I wrote about Uber and all the things that are like Uber because I thought that not just the uh, the, the, the companies that are doing ride-sharing, but the, the entire idea where you know it's, it's based on this app that you sign on to, and then they assign you a small task or a large task. I thought that that was the future and that that future, as you say, uh, was not necessarily that good for people who are working on those things. And so, yeah, so I wrote The Desperate Hustle is a Way of Life, and I connected it to uh, the sharing economy, what they called it then, right? I connected it to the uh, what we call the shadow economy, right? So the guy who's down on the street, uh, you know, trying to help sell hats and mittens or sometimes, you know, bottled water or sometimes... Uh, drugs you know <laughs> it's basically a very similar kind of thing it's like you're always you're always looking for your next thing you don't have any job security you don't have any you know you don't have any fallback position right and it looks like that that model is taking us to uh, uh, either a third world kind of situation right where a lot of places in, in, in other countries are or to a 19th century situation in America the other thing he said that hadn't got enough attention I think John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft, these are the good guys, they're getting beat up. He says, Lyft was inspired by what the other co-founder found in Zimbabwe. This guy was out in the, hin- in the hinterlands of Zimbabwe. People are walking down the street with dollar bills, with, with, with money in their hands. Anybody with a vehicle might stop and pick them up. He's looking at the shadow economy in a developing nation. And he says, oh, that's so social, we should uproot that, make that the way we do things in America. Okay? And by the way, it's illegal in Zimbabwe, too. In Harare, they have regular cabs. But this is not those, this is the illegal guys. Right? Zimbabwe has a per capita income of $130 a year. What do you suppose happens when, oh, by the way, 
That means nobody really much pays taxes. That means the government's corrupt, etc., etc. What do you think happens when they don't pay the bribes that the cops demand in order for them to keep running illegally? Social. Okay, so imagine this. What if what if the burden of proof were reversed? What if it wasn't up to me to stand up here and make the case for why, you know, the, the, the developing world's system isn't the thing we should graft onto America and make our future? What if instead it was the shadow economy people? They had to stand up here and make the positive case for why the developing world's social, political. Economic system was a thing America ought to shoot for. So you're looking at companies in addition to Uber or Lyft, oh, things yeah, like, like HomeJoy and, and Airbnb. I thought was a great one because it's a little different, right? But but. Well, the interesting thing with with them is they're now coming up against hassles where, like, the city of New York is saying you're keeping apartments off the market, was, you're driving up rents, you are seem, acting as a hotel, but you're not. All of them seem to be designed to go around the regulations. It always looked to me, and again, always it, as soon as I, I noticed this, it looked to me like these business models were designed by people, uh, you know, at the. Uh, Uh, at the think tank, the libertarian think tank, the Cato Foundation, where they're like, "What can we think of that is like, you know, needlessly regulated?" I'm surprised there isn't an app for hairdressers, right? Because that was always their big bugbear. It's like, "Why do you have to get a state license to be a hairdresser? It's not like you're a surgeon." Well, they're right about that, right? <laughs> you know? Right. But it looked to me like they were all designed to get around regulations and taxes, which, of course, is the way a lot of businesses have been designed. It's just a new, and you know, more maybe insidious way to go about it. <laughs> What is the end game on it? You know, for them. I mean, they've created these part-time jobs for people yeah. without benefits. You know, with you know, opportunity to make some money with your own car. You know, you ha you have a, a well, incredible international fleet of vehicles that you don't own a single one. That's of. the scam of it. I think is people. Most people are pretty stupid about how much money it's they're it, it's costing them to own their car mm -hmm. and how much wear and tear they're going to put on it. And people are waking up to that now, a year or two into it. They're like, wow. Yeah, I just put you know thirty thousand miles on it. Boy, it shouldn't have been a lease. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble now. Yeah. But, yeah. but on the other hand, I mean, there's the since so I don't have a car, and, and we use Zipcar sometimes. And whenever I use it, I'm always aware that I'm paying for it to be sitting there. And so I think that's the psychology that that the Uber people are kind of behind that that you really picked up on in your piece is that. If you have a car and you're paying for it to be sitting there anyway, you need to get paid for that. If you have a house, you can't just have a house. You right. can't just have a car. That's a luxury for, you know, the first world. And we're not there anymore. We're now third world where you have to be hustling all the time. You can't have a car and let it sit there and pay. You can't have a house, an empty room. Someone should be in that room at all times and you should be getting paid for and, it. And what actually, and it was tied insidiously and brilliantly, I thought, to uh, the environmental problems we all face by John Zimmer of Lyft. He's a co-founder of Lyft. And he said, and I, I think he certainly believes this, he thought, well, there's the number of empty seats driving down the street uh, is, you know, and there's a figure for it, you know, but typically, you know, 1.1 seats in any, in any vehicle that's rolling is filled. So he thought, well, we could fill those seats and it's, everybody wins because we're not burning as much gas and all this other stuff. And, you know, on paper, um, you know, it almost looks like that might, that might work. Yeah. yeah. In, in theory, if it were something like, you know, a great ride sharing board, you know, where you were, you know, doing carpooling on a which, on a more random basis. Which is how they started. Yeah. And, and it's a uh, it's something where 
that's one thing, and that's a good thing. But when people are trying to turn it into a living, and when Uber raises a couple billion dollars just to finance car loans right. for people who want to drive for them, right. and the loans are paid automatic deduction out of your earnings before you get paid, you pay the you pay them to pay your loan. It's like the company store. Well, it is, and that's exactly why I have a real problem with Uber in particular. But really, Lyft is in the same boat. Once you look at once you look at the business of of livery service. Holistically, you realize that it, it works as a monopoly. And what these guys are attacking is the taxi monopoly, which has been a regional monopoly in each city for you know many years. And it's a regulated monopoly. And yeah. so they're trying to attack that. Um, that's, how the, that's how the taxi people make money, is by having it be a monopoly. And so they're basically going to say, well, all these little city-based monopolies, we're just going to blow those guys away. And we'll be a national or an international monopoly called Uber, and everybody will be us. That's what they're aiming for now. That's why they need all the money they got. Well, the interesting thing is with any monopoly, there is complacency. And you have you know, services which are less than ideal. And with the taxis you know, in this town and many other towns, it, people hated them. Well, and, yeah. You know, the idea of like, well, I'm, I'm riding a, in a private car with, you know, a guy who's, who's driving me and it's, it's a comfortable car. And especially when it started with the, you know, things that were town cars, the, the original Uber service. Yeah. It was fancy. It was special. It is. Uh, you know, and Uber X is, you know, it could be a, a Prius or a Toyota or, or who knows what. And, uh, and you don't have that choice. And it just shows up. And the guy may or may not know right. where you're going. It's still uh, better, though, isn't it? Because the, 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 the typical taxi car is an LTD with a hundred and or maybe two hundred and fifty thousand miles on right. it, right? In desperate of shocks. To heck, right? And that's because that the taxi monopoly system is designed to make you know enrich the people who have the taxi company. Right. And the drivers get nothing. They basically no. they're paying money every every week to, to rent that piece of junk that they're driving around in. Do you know how uh, Uber has impacted things like the medallions uh, in New York? Well, the, the medallions, are the prices are going way down. Right? Yeah, that's what I, I thought. And the, one of the guys at the New York Times has been gleefully reporting this and actually doing the, I can't remember which guy it is, but he's been writing these columns every so often at, uh, in, in the New York Times' blog on this. And, uh, right, the number was around a million, 1.1 in New York, and now it's down in, like, I think 750, something wow. like that. In Boston, it's the same basic thing. You looked at Chicago as well. And, the yeah, and it's tricky data to get. But mm -hmm. I believe that what that person is seeing and writing about is probably pretty true. It would only stand to reason. Now, of course, the, the flip side of that is like, oh, yeah, these evil medallion owners who are, like, exploiting everybody, which they are. But they're also, most of those people are, like, everyday people who maybe otherwise would have had a little corner store. And what do you do when you have a little corner store? Well, you work 13 hours a day every day for, like, 40 years, yep. <laughs> and then you hope to sell it. Yeah, and a lot of the guys retire. who had, had medallions, uh, you know, there are some who were independent or who had a couple or whatever, and... And various, Most of them you know, borrowed that money. Yeah, sure. To, to pay for that medallion, and so when now, when now that they're upside down, they're kind of screwed. Well, the interesting thing about you know, at least with a taxi driver, you have somebody who has a hack license. They've they've been to school. They know the rules of the road, and ostensibly they know their way around the city. Mm. Uh, the Uber hiring process was so streamlined and so fast. I, I went through it back in December to see what this. it was all about. You know, you uh, take a photo of your license, you upload it. You take a photo of your insurance card, you upload it. You take a photo of your car registration, you upload that. Bing, bang, boom. They do a background check on you, and it was like, do you want to see the results of your background check? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. You go through this whole process, meet with people once, take your picture to put on the, uh, on the app, and say, watch the training video, go make money. So how long did that take altogether? That was a couple of days. Wow. It was, They're it, very streamlined, aren't they? It was very streamlined. It was impressive. Yeah. And, you know, the... Uh, uh, the thing about the service is that people universally like it. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it is you know, extremely popular. But what you got into was a really important thing uh, in the, the bigger picture of things as to where are we heading as a society. To some people in the tech industry, civilization is an obstacle. It's an obstacle to their hitting it big. And these are people for whom innovation is progress minus the enlightenment. Progress minus the Enlightenment. We don't want any John Locke in it. We don't want any Rousseau. There's not even any Adam Smith, because we have Ayn Rand in Spark Notes. And so, yeah, I finally got... So, so I finally realized, I can't, I can't argue with them. I've got to convince everybody who's not them that what's at stake here is a big deal. What's at stake here is a social compact. And another thing, that this really isn't... In, an innovation. What this, what's happening is really just an evolution of what's been going on in business in America, especially for the past 40 years. Well, that's, I mean, it's fascinating on that level because that's what we're talking about is the way that, that Adam Smith said the invisible hand of capitalism worked by everyone making their individual choice. And when we decide Uber's better for me because it's cold outside and I don't want to stand out there hailing a cab, I'll call and I'll wait and I'll come. And, and Uber is better for the user in some ways. But we're making a, a collective decision that we're not aware of, of what we want our world to be when we make those individual decisions. My, my problem with the way folks, uh, some folks at Silicon Valley think about is, of Adam Smith is they only think of the invisible hand, which appeared, I think, exactly once right. in The Wealth of Nations. The book was not about that. It was, it, you know, it was about, yes, we all do what, you know, do what we can, but it, wasn't, it didn't say that we don't have any responsibility for each other. That's how you make a society. And what, what has always struck me with this amazing technology we have and the, and the big brain sort of deploying it is that if they weren't tethered to their venture capitalists and, and their ideology, we could take this technology as a society and turn it into something that really would be incredibly, make things much more efficient and better for, for everybody. And by the way, the people who come up with these ideas would still make a lot of money. They still would be very, very rich at the end of it, but they wouldn't have to make everybody else a little bit poorer for it. Right, like certain benefits that are, so we have a columnist, Thaddeus Logan, who wrote the book Hey Cabbie and Hey Cabbie Too and, and writes for us and has been a cabbie in Baltimore for 35 years. And so we went and saw August Wilson's play Jitney together um, over at the Arena Players a little while ago that was about illegal hacks. And so in talking to him about that, there were really interesting things, though, like cabs historically not serving black neighborhoods, which is why you have the hacks with the hand gestures, you know, picking up someone by making a hand gesture on the street, which is why you had these places that you would have a phone number within the community and call and they'd come pick you up. And Uber can solve those things to some level. They can't. It's on the app right there. Or my wife, if she goes out with her buddy and has drinks... I'd way rather her get in an Uber late at night than get a cab off the street because no one knows she's in that cab off the street. With the Uber, it's being tracked. Someone knows where it is. And there are so there are real things that could be social benefits that would come from this if it didn't come from the other sort of if it didn't have all of these other costs in there. And and the regulation for cabbies, though, one of the things about regulation in the cab world is that, yes, you have to accommodate those who have handicaps and you have to be willing to drive into, you know, African-American neighborhoods and all these sorts of things, which the Uber folks have up until now, and unless, unless something's happened that I didn't notice, have always said, well, that's, that's not our bag. We don't have to do that. You know, you guys do that. You guys who are trying to eliminate. Well, you know, it's still there is a, a class line in a way that's being drawn by them because it is app driven. 
you know that right. you know you have to have a smartphone and you have to you know have a, a account for that you know to to do this and that's one of the things you know from the the driving side you know the same as your your girlfriend or wife getting into a a, a cab late at night um, you know where it's going it tracks the route and all that sort of stuff as a driver you know the person getting in there is registered you know and, and there's a level of comfort there you're not just picking up a random person on the street you would you know, say well. though with with Uber because they don't know that much about you and they vet you themselves but. They don't go through the vetting process that the actual, you know, cab, you know, legal no. cabs have to go through. Um, there was a case not too long ago in California where an Uber driver took took a woman far, far out of her way, and uh, I think she ended up getting home safe eventually. But there was quite a battle about that, and Uber's response immediately was. Uh, well, that looks like an inefficient route, <laughs> you know, and it, which was probably an automated response. To be yeah, fair right. to them, <laughs> but but it really didn't. It didn't. Well, speaking of automated responses, and one of the other things that they got a lot of uh, crap for was in Sydney, Australia, when the uh, terror thing happened in downtown. All of a sudden, within the hour, people were trying to get out of town, and Uber rates were up to four x surge pricing or whatever, which is right. you know, an, automatic surge pricing. Is and within an hour, they came out and they they manually overrode it. Right. But just you know, the algorithm-driven uh, you know thing doesn't respond to, um, you know, yeah. it, it makes them look like they were trying to. The to algorithm is a it. perfect, app, you know, example of what of the thinking here. It's it's a perfect libertarian study in how things should work and then how they really work. Because if you talk to Uber drivers and you are one or were one at least, you know that a lot of them watch those apps in order to look for surge pricing, and sometimes they turn off their apps in order to try to induce surge pricing pricing it is it becomes a game um which is sort of the opposite of what we hope for when you have a civilized society is that we could try to take the games out of it and and straighten out the incentives for people so that they will do the right thing you know sort of automatically and i think uber in in surge pricing they're thinking of doing this but it's so blunt and simple that it doesn't work and i wonder peter you may know this about the insurance companies what what does your insurance company say about using your vehicle for profit in that way? My insurance company says, no, you may not use our insurance for commercial, flat right. out, and most of them would. So there, there is this automatic shifting of coverage um, that, that happens with that. You know, they, and what if, I mean, the other, my neighbor's also a cab driver, and so both him and Thaddeus, one of the biggest problems are drunk people getting in, puking in their cabs. Yep. What, do you, what do you do? You request a cleaning charge if someone vomits in your car. Uh, you know, and it's actually a standard thing in the uh, in the app. You know, to do that. No, I have not had anybody throw up in my car. I have had one very drunk person in my car, uh, and and that was that was actually unnerving. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to have you know two, three, or four really drunk people, and somebody hurls, and then a second one goes. That would be just it's wow. the nightmare. Because um, you know it's. It's a personal car, right? And, and worst of all, my wife's personal car. Oh yeah, yeah. Which there is no amount of money or fun or experience or research that I'm doing which is going to pay enough to cover what that would entail. But, but it sounds like the, the 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 app actually works for you, and 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 very much as it was described originally, as, as a part time way to pick up a couple of extra dollars. But in well, a way, it's like adjunct teaching, which you've also written about a lot. But that oh, sure. ideally, with well, the reason adjunct. Being adjunct professorship was created was to have a businessman be able to come in and teach business. A journalist come in who has a job, come and then teach journalism and not only have professional professors, but then it, it, the same way that the sort of Uber thing works, then you have this, oh, well, we can actually cut cost 
overall as a whole by having everyone be adjuncts. And we don't need all of this tenure and security and Right. All of these all of these business models are later on top later on top of and take advantage of and assume that always will exist the other economy of people who have wives or husbands with, with stable jobs or mm-hmm. you know or some other kind of income. Yeah. Um, well, that works as long as there are those things. But if but if your business model becomes the norm, which is obviously what the ultimate aim is, then suddenly maybe it won't work anymore. There's one thing about efficiency that bothers me. It's, it's, it's become the ultimate goal. And I'm not sure what I'm getting out of that uh, as a citizen who does not have venture capital back, you know, backing. And I'm not sure what you're getting out of that efficiency drive or what Baynard's getting out of it. I think that a lot of us ought to be basically starting a revolution for inefficiency. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's right. Exactly the Uber thing is we, the more efficient we are, the more little bits we can compartmentalize and sell and the better, exactly. the, the better neoliberal subjects we are that can, can maximize profit for someone else. That way of thinking is a great way of thinking and a really interesting way of thinking. It's not the only way of thinking. Our second feature on this episode, the Lexington Market is Not a Shithole, in which we discuss the proposed redevelopment of Baltimore's famous Lexington Market and urban redevelopment in general. Travel with us now to the exotic, yet local, Lexington Market. All right, well, let's hop into our Uber car and head over to the Lexington Market. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and this really ties into the, the whole Lexington Market thing. So they want that there's this plan, $26.7 million, um, to spend to make the market more vibrant is the sort of word that they use. And, and in a way, it's to make it more efficient, to cut all the people out of the, the market who are loitering, who are hanging about, who are not maximizing the profit for someone. Um, or who are maximizing the profit for themselves by selling drugs is is one of the fair things that people want to get rid of. And and so when I saw the study and I saw the coverage of the study, it really initially made me suspicious because covering the arts community, you see this word vibrant a lot. When when they had the ribbon cutting a, a year or two ago for the Station North Arts Entertainment um, District's new office at, at one West North Avenue at the Chicken Box. And the mayor was doing the ribbon cutting. She said that the vibrancy of this area will bring the 10,000 cities that I want to bring to the city. And so you start asking, well, what does that vibrancy, what do they really mean by that? What is this word that people are using? And every arts organization and arts district and people trying to get money for their arts stuff, which isn't really about art at all, is talking about that. This, this word vibrancy, and it's the same thing that they're using for at the Lexington Market. And, and part of what they mean is white people. And a big part of it, because it's almost always, and white, not just white people, but the creative class, white people. Can you do me a favor and define what you're saying by creative class? Yeah, so it's this, this term that Richard Florida um, started using a, a decade or so ago, and several decades maybe now. And um, so it's people that are going to come in that are associated with arts, that are, um, so not just artists, Charlie Duff, who is, is in charge of Jubilee Baltimore, um, who's doing a lot of the funding for this here. He had a great example of that. He's like, my kid's not an artist, but my kid hangs out with all the artists. My kid spends money at the cafes, at the bars, buys the band's music, and then works in those places. And so it's the creative class is the whole economy that builds up 
around marketing art as a way to bring money into an area. And so not marketing art, but marketing hipness. Marketing, and so it's weird because vibrancy also has to have a certain level of that other word, grittiness, with it in order to attract the creative class. It can't just be, oh, a lot of people moving about, or you have Harbor East. And that's not vibrant. Nor authentic. Right, and it's right. So grittiness and authenticity play into creative class so that you have the, the kind of people who go to theaters at night and have enough money to go. And, and they also then will call themselves creatives. Um, and so, yeah, if they call themselves creative, though, they're not. <laughs> I reach for my gun. <laughs> right. By definition, they're not. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like declaring yourself cool or you know, nobody calls himself a hipster. Right, right. And, and so you had this interesting thing from, the, from when you worked in Florida out of the, the Richard Florida book of a good example of this vibrancy bringing the um, creative class there. And, and Yeah, I'm trying to remember the example. It was, in, it was in Orlando, Florida, where I worked. And in one of the books he wrote back in the early 90s, he had a whole chapter lauding this one development in, uh, in downtown Orlando. A really inspiring chapter, as I recall. And I, I wish I had better uh, specifics on this. As a person who lived in Orlando, the most important thing that I noticed about it was that the, the thing never did get built. He had written the book before when it was on the boards and it was on paper, but it hadn't. It for some reason didn't get built. <laughs> and, and he wrote it assuming that it, it was. The, yeah, it was in the book, but it didn't exist in reality. <laughs> so, and I mean, it, it's complicated in Baltimore because it's not. A lot of people. I've been talking to a lot of people lately about this kind of stuff, and. Some people just do the knee-jerk gentrification that it's like talking about Station North specifically and that that's what's going to happen then. Lexington Market's now in the new Bromo um, Tower Arts District and that that's sort of what's going to happen there. But it's not gentrification in the sense that we see like in Washington, D.C., which people a lot of times will sort of make that knee-jerk assumption. D.C. is weird because you can't build higher than the Capitol. There's a very much more limited amount of of real estate there. And so tons of people have been forced out. I used to teach school there, and all of my kids would call PG County Ward 9 because that's where they were all being forced to live because of gentrification. But, you know, there's there's a 50% vacancy rate in the neighborhoods that make up the um, Station North Arts District. So what's really happening there is this weird thing, and it is, this is happening. So 10 years ago, you make it an arts district, and you have people like um, coming in, making the load of fun at, at uh, 130 West North Avenue. Over at Howard and North, you have single carrot move in there. You have artist studios. It brings this certain amount of vibrancy, brings these right. people in. Then you price those artists out. Yeah, well, so, yeah. Well, it's happened in New York over and over again. I mean, uh, you know, from yeah. from the Village to Soho to Hoboken to Williamsburg. And Williamsburg is now becoming, you know, uh, pricey for people. impossible, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's now that they're moving further out into, I don't know, Canarsie or God knows where. Uh, out into, actually, it's um, East New York, I think, was is like the new one. The, the new frontier? I, supposedly. Yeah, it's which one is, of the things. If you, look, if you look 30 years ahead, if you're the kind of real estate person who looks 30 years ahead, and, and you know a few gay people, you know, you can really make your <laughs> do very, very well for yourself. I mean, I don't know any real estate people though who work who look thirty years ahead. I always think I used to think it was a conspiracy, but when I started talking to people who flip houses and stuff like this, you realize that there's no way they can look thirty years ahead. They can look six months ahead because they're, because they're in hock to a hard money lender, you know, yeah. and they're paying eighteen percent. So, but it does happen. But the pattern you see it everywhere, and that word vibrancy. 
Well, the whole the whole idea of of arts-driven economic development is um, again we're back to something which on paper sounds like a fantastic idea, and I think you know what you're talking about with the Bromo Arts area and being in proximity to Lexington Market, which is, you know, that is a that is a little bit of a clash there, you know, between who's coming in you know for one and the and the other. But it it shouldn't have to be. Sort of what my point is is that that there's no reason that the only thing people don't like is that they're afraid of is poor and then specifically black people hanging around. That makes the white people that they want to bring in to do the art stuff nervous. And so that you do see a lot less people in Station North just kind of hanging around, less loitering or whatever. And you see a lot more college age white people moving around. But it's it's Still, in the same with the Bromo District, it's not that much of a residential area. So we're not talking about forcing people out of their homes. There are enough vacants here that we have. So it's more about the businesses and the kind. And that's what's happening then in Lexington Market is there. And and we're going to do a larger story on this to go look. So one of the things they want to have is more specialty food. This is becoming also the, the sort of keyword, like specialty food. Well, why isn't some of the stuff they have over there considered specialty food now? You know, I mean, certainly the raccoon at and the muskrat, which which I cook annually uh, over at at Fadley's, is a specialty food if there ever is one. But that doesn't count as specialty foods. Fadley's, of course, is the business that's most safe there, of course. Right. Um, and and burgers, cookies, and some of the other places are are the safest places. But they really will have. We went and asked a couple months ago when we first started looking at this plan. Went and asked a number of the merchants, and they were really scared that the people who are are Shopping here won't be able to come here. They're going to close it down for the time. I'm not going to be able to make my nut during the period while they're closed remodeling. I won't be able to hold through. And that's one of the ways that I think places will get forced out, even if they're allowed in. Hey, we have to shut down for six months. You have to maintain yourself as a business for six months with no income, with no place to be, and only the ones that have the kind of capital that can afford that. And they also have at 520 West Park, um, I mean, at North Park Avenue, you have... This new place that was the parking garage there is, is also specialty shops. It's right across from the new Trinacria. So you have a lot of these places that are going to be competing with each other to be high-end markets. And I don't know if there's a saturation for how much high-end market can you take. How many people can buy $8 olives in the middle of downtown Baltimore? And that's what they're pushing is the $8 olive, I think, which I love $8 olives sometimes. I say, meanwhile, in Harbor East, the biggest Whole Foods you've ever wanted to see is... Another competition for yeah, another it, right? Whole, right, whole paycheck over there. It's, it's fascinating to watch the food battle happen in this town because, right, if you talk to, as you do, talk to people in the neighborhoods and stuff, you know, they want to get cheap food. They want to get good cheap food. But specialty foods, what does that mean, you know? It means I mean, to me, you, chicken you and know. waffles is special. Sure. You know, that's like, wow. <laughs> hey. And it's also prepared versus unprepared foods. And so they're, they're trying to, they're going to give you a cheaper rent if you sell unprepared foods. Meaning, and, and this is a good, well-meaning thing to get rid of food desert things so you can go. But so many of the places there now are currently serving um, fresh fruits and vegetables. And so it's unclear. We're, I'm going over to do a count of how many places serve fresh fruits and vegetables now, in addition to other types of foods that they have that would be prepared. And, and what exactly does this mean in the plan? And, and I really think that it's this weird utopian thinking that look at what happened with um, Eastern Market in, um, I mean, Union Market in, in Washington, D.C., which burned down. 
So if like Newmarket were to burn down and you had to rebuild it from scratch, maybe you would do things different. But that's right. it's not what happened. So that can be the only thing they mean. This piece that I wrote about um, the vibrant vibrance of vibrancy it was, it was really about the only thing that you can mean by vibrancy is getting rid of poor people and getting rid of African-American people. Because if you go over there on a Saturday, there's nothing that is on any day of the week right now if we were to walk over there, except Sunday, in which case it's not vibrant. It's closed. And and I'd love to see Sunday hours. I'd love to see evening hours. It gets fairly desolate there around those times. I spend a lot of time walking around that area, but it's super, you know, the number of people jostling around, it's impossible. Whenever I feel a little bit melancholy, I walk over there because it's impossible to be stuck in your own head when you walk to the Lexington Market. And, and it, it breaks you out of that melancholiness because you aren't in control of what's going on. You do see all of this kind of stuff happening. And, you know, would it be better if we didn't have a lot of drug dealers in, in the city? It probably would. But I've never felt threatened when I walk by and someone just whispers Molly in my ear. You know, they're not forcing me to buy this. They're not hassling me about it. They think, oh, maybe this is a person that our photographer, Joe Giordano, says that he's never been offered drugs over there because he looks like a cop. And I don't. I might look more he like looks, a druggie. He looks like a cop from 1978. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he looks like he's on Mod Squad. Oh, Starsky and Hodge are walking through. <laughs> <laughs> but you're it's right, like a TV so cop, even better. You have a nice mix at, at, at Lexington now. There is some high-end stuff there, and there are people in there, tourists in there, too. But there's also regular Baltimore people, and they're all their pageantry, right? So it's why is that so bad? Well, because it's not maximizing the profits, and the eight-dollar olives are going to be the thing. Well, damn, you know what? I mean, yeah, you don't want that every day. You know, with twenty-six million dollars, you can do an awful lot, and then you're going to have to get some kind of return on. Now, there, right. the ownership on it is a, a some kind of quasi-public-private partnership. Cover, yeah, it's a government. Yeah, that's exactly right. Quasi-public government nonprofit of some sort. And, you know, the same kind of thing at Cross Street or, or any of the city markets. You know, you, you talk about the revitalizing, you know, effect of being there. You walk the length of Cross Street Market and you just look at what's going on, and it does. You are a different person when you come out the other side. It actually is a bit of a, you know. They're, they're exactly what Richard Florida is really talking about. It's, you know, this sort of, this is why you want to have a city, so you can have a place like this. Yeah. And then the next question is, well, what kind of place like this? And the planners... And nutritionists all have one idea, and it's going to be better for everybody, <laughs> according to them. And then when you let it be, like the libertarians would be like, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> you know the, the, the city, we're seeing uh, a whole lot more young people, 25, 34-year-olds, moving into downtown who don't want to have a car, who don't want to commute, who don't have the goal right now of having a, a yard in the burbs, uh, who are living you know, life in, in a different way. Uh, than, you know, was happening, you know, 30, 40 years ago in the city where people were, were moving out in it's droves. Running, the city's had a net increase in population, and most of it... Yeah, particularly uh, downtown. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you, you have things like these markets, uh, you know, r- other supermarkets and things coming in, to the point where, and this goes actually back to an Uber uh, conversation I had with somebody, this woman was saying there aren't enough clubs in Baltimore to handle the amount of population that wants to go to them anymore. Wow. The, it, and I was like... I'm so out of it. I have no idea. But, you know, just describing places, you know, lines out the door, you know, at these late hours, you know, for, for this stuff. And I guess limitation, I can't believe there's not enough bars in Baltimore, but there, she's talking specifically the right, about. The right kind of bar, though. She that is, you know, this was a person, this was a, um, you know, upper middle class woman, uh, you know, mid-20s, uh, you know, her 
Her friend's apartment was in a nice building downtown. She was going to a nice building up uh, North Charles, north of Hopkins. So, I mean, it was a certain class, you know, who was looking for this. And, and they, she feels that is very underserved by this. And so that was interesting to me, that there's that kind of demand on, on nightlife. To me, though, that's way. so hilarious that the, the – I mean, and it's typical, but the, the – Upper middle class white person feels underserved in Baltimore. I mean, that's exactly what this whole market plan is: is right. remake the market for the Cantonites, remake the market in the same way that we're. And, and I mean, the one thing that, that we might have that saves us from that—the great line from David Simon, you know, "This is Baltimore, gentlemen. The gods will not save you." It's Baltimore, gentlemen. The gods will not save you. I don't know that we have the capacity, that our, that our leadership has the capacity to follow through with this plan. The mayor had a similar plan a couple of years ago to have all of the healthy food in the market. And that never happened. And we look at the Broadway market, which has been supposed to be being redone for a long time now. And so there's the certain thing where we, we, our own incompetence is partly what, what is part of the, the greatness that the plans that people have aren't always able to happen because these grand plans are, are things that, that are really we should be distrustful of because when they do happen, they never happen as exactly as they are, are projected. We, we just can't predict the future and can't right. predict the way things are going to play out. But um, fortunately, we're fairly bad at getting things started even. You know, driving across North Avenue from east to west, you know, and you, you go through these horrible wasteland areas and then you have this just a couple of blocks, you know, that are, you know, have Mica, you know, have a flagship there and, and these other buildings which are coming out. And then, you know, the bridge over, you know, to uh, the Mica side is, is a barrier. It's not going to grow any further that way. I mean, is it something which is going to go up Charles or is it going to go across further on north, you know, to the west side? Well, really, the question is, or the answer is it's going to go down Charles from Hopkins. So Hopkins has already planned to extend housing all the way down to Landvale Street, which is just south of North. So, and Hopkins and Micah have teamed up on um, the Parkway Theater and then the Center Theater, which is at uh, 10 East North Avenue. So right. they've crossed Charles Street on, on North Ave, going towards the, the school district office at Calvert. And so it's going to go, and Joe Squared's going to have a new barbecue restaurant there if that's still coming through in, in the center. But so it's really going to, that's going to be the thing that's going to dramatically change that area is the Hopkins and Micah partnership there um, that will send. And you already see, I mean, there's an amazing thing happening that I think is one of the most spectacular, unlooked at parts in the city right now is above North Avenue on Charles Street, which isn't officially part of the Arts District. The Arts District tried to expand up to 25th, but because of the state regulations on what an Arts District can be, it's not allowed to. So it still ends right above North Avenue. But then you have the Crown, which is one of the sort of uh, you know, coolest music venues and stuff in town right now with really good food and interesting things happening there. Then you have this whole row of, of boutiques and shops that have all opened that are really cheap with cheap rent right now. So there's a new sex shop um, with the weirdly uh, honorific name Perv Effect, I believe. <laughs> um, and then you have like boutiques selling all kinds of, of different specialty clothing items. And there's actually... I think what might happen that could be a really cool thing in that area is there's still not that much of a reason for people to be there in the daytime other than students who are around Micah. But but if they have these places that are still able to keep low rent and people can take a chance and have 
a, a clothing shop that sells spiked bras, um, like one of the places I was just walking by. That, like, I mean, you know, I, I play in a rock and roll band, and I need to find some spiked bras sometime. And there needs to be a place that you can find, and there's a good market for that in, in Baltimore. Um, and and so it's it's there's some pretty spectacular stuff happening right there right now where it's not regulated, where you really see, and it's not just by, by the rich people, but you see what's bubbling up just on the outskirts of that. And I think that'll be where to look in all of these arts districts, what's happening right around it. Yeah, what it sounds like is an arts district that's happening without a master plan. Imagine that. Well, it's, it's, but it's on the front, the it's boundary organic. of the other, yeah. you know, so it's, it's interesting. Sucking a little bit of that money off to the side and, and people actually being able to do interesting things with it. Right. Cool. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And now to conclude this episode of the Baltimore City Paper podcast, a few words of wisdom from Baltimore electronic musician Dan Deacon. I also think about like psychedelia a lot and how people, some people think psychedelia is like, oh, it's like a frog wearing a tie-dye t-shirt and sunglasses <laughs> and he's on like a wavy moon. You know what I mean? And like, that's awesome. I'd love to see right. that. <laughs> but that's not what psychedelia is. Psychedelic. If that was all it was, it'd be a lot easier to deal with. Uh, psychedelics aren't good or bad, or mm-hmm. there's no good or evil. It's mm-hmm. just it's just a realm. The same way that, because yeah. it's an aspect of nature, and nature isn't good or evil, it just is. Thank you for listening to the Baltimore City Paper Podcast. Special thanks to contributors Ed Erickson and Baynard Woods. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Our theme music is courtesy of the Barnyard Sharks. Until next time, I'm Peter Clough.